You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're talking about leading above the line. What does it mean to lead above the line? Where exactly is the line? My guest is Michelle Bahari. And she does an amazing job of bringing to life and adding real depth to this concept of above and below the line leadership. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Bahari. Michelle Bahari, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, David. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure to have you, Michelle. Now, we were just talking before we hit record about your fabulous book, Leading Above the Line, and I was telling you how much I absolutely loved it. I was really surprised to hear that it's your first book, actually. That did take me by surprise. You seem like such an accomplished writer. I really appreciate that feedback. It is my first book, and I was a little bit, I was never very good at English, or maybe I was better at physics and chemistry and pure and applied maths when I was at school. So English wasn't my strong suit. So I really appreciate that a lot. But I'm obviously very passionate about the subject matter. So yeah. Uh, Look, your book is uh, the perfect confluence of passion, experience, research, and some really handy writing. As I said, I enjoyed it very much. But let's get stuck into the content because even just the title of your book, speaks volumes. We've all heard, and we all even use colloquially, I guess, the above the line and below the line behavior. Your book does a brilliant job at teasing that out and helping us to all understand that so well. At one point in the book, pretty early in the book, you kind of set up the question, what is above and below the line behavior? And I thought, gee, that's a good question. Riding along with the assumption that we all knew what it was, I was really interested to hear or read how you were going to answer your own question, and you did it beautifully. I don't know if you remember how you expressed it in the book, but just give us a quick lesson in in how we can understand the basics of above and below the line behavior. Thanks so much. Great question. Well, above the line behavior is behavior that brings out the best in us. So if we're on the receiving end of behavior, We want it to be at minimum neutral, which is the line really, and above the line is behavior that's going to either positively, slightly positively impact or highly positively impact. So it's good for us. It's healthy. Below the line is the opposite of that. It's everything that's not good for us. And particularly, I guess, with my background in neuroscience and my background in mental health, particularly interested in this exquisite area of work, which is all about interpersonal neurobiology. Now, that sounds like a really fancy term, but what it really means is the impact of interpersonal relationships on our brain functioning. So above the line, behavior simply means behavior that's really good for us and for our functioning. So it has a direct positive impact on our brain functioning. In fact, positive behavior helps us stay in our executive brain, which is where we think our best thoughts, where we're strategic, lateral, creative, but also where we can see things from different people's perspectives. So it's really good for relationships. It's good for how we learn as well, because we can see the nuance in things. You know, it's very, very helpful. 
below the line behavior triggers our reptile response. So it triggers our amygdala and brainstem. So a comprehensive answer, but absolutely, I think it's really important. And as you know, even the cover of the book tries to sort of convey that sort of that experience. Yeah. The example you gave to bring it to life in your book, which I loved for its simplicity, was imagine I go into a shop and I have an interaction buying something from the shopkeeper. If I just go through that exchange and I get what I want, they get their money and everything goes to plan, that's a neutral interaction. That's on the line. Anything that's better than that, a little bit of a a brief conversation, a sharing a joke or a pleasant hello, that takes it a little bit above the line. But if there's an argument or a problem with the interaction, that drops it below the line. So that simple example really helped a dullard like me to understand what this above and below the line behavior. By understanding what's on the line, what is a neutral interaction, that really helped me. And I I love that term, interpersonal neurobiology. You know, Michelle, I think one of the reasons your book so fascinated me is because I'm quite aware of how little I know around the neuroscience of leadership. I spent a lot of time talking about leadership and observing and, and running workshops and having conversations But I feel as though the neuroscience of leadership is a little bit out of my realm. I've had one or two guests on the podcast before to talk about it, and I've learned a little bit, but it's such a deep topic, a deep field of study that means so much to us as humans and people in the workplace that I think that's the the nub of of my my fascination with your work. Let's talk about below-the-line behavior, the, the, the shape of your book necessarily spends a little bit of time raking over the coals. And regular listeners to my podcast will know that we always end the the episode on some really handy, helpful tips, some nuggets of gold. But I do love raking over the coals of what's wrong in a situation before we get to fixing it. So indulge me here, Michelle. Let's talk about what a workplace looks like when there are individuals, teams, and organizations acting below the line. What's going on for people in a workplace like that? Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And I I will reference back to the analogy of going into the milk bar and buying something. So when people are under stress, under pressure, when there's too much work, where people's ego are running rampant, where there's competitiveness is being brought out in people because they, you know, a lot of fear gets generated in a workplace. What happens to everybody, what happens to all of us, is that we end up functioning below the line. We're functioning from the amygdala or brainstem. And the reason that happens is because it's like we have a an antivirus software in our head that's constantly scanning our environment danger. for negativity, mm. danger, things that make us feel unsafe, fear and all of that. And as soon as that is operating in, in our environment and we feel fearful, it's like the antivirus senses that risk or threat and it takes over and we're functioning from this part of our brain. And you know what it's like when you've got a Trojan sort of thing on your virus or Trojan horse or whatever on your, on your, you know, it all takes over, everything starts flashing and that works really hard. And then you can see what happens when one person is in fear. It's like a virus. So one person behaves a bit negatively, a bit sharply, a bit rudely. And it affects everyone around them. So, I mean, you know, there's a cumulative sort of effect that occurs even when there's stress and, and, you know, a lot of negativity that's operating in that workplace. Of course, as well, going to a deeper level, we know that there are toxic workplaces and I, 
you know, in the context of current politics, it's not hard to look at what's going on around us. We're seeing a lot of below the line behavior, environments where toxic behavior has just been allowed to run rampant without any, you know, addressing those sorts of issues. And this is, you know, so from small little snide remarks and shortness and exclusion and gossiping and bitching through to discrimination, harassment, sexual harassment, bullying, all of those very serious things that are, you know, unlawful and very, very damaging to people's well-being, to people's mental health. I'm fascinated by the idea that when we're feeling under pressure, when we sense danger, when we are led by someone, and we all know the basic stat about people leave, don't, people don't leave jobs, they leave managers or they leave leaders. When people are managed by someone who puts them under undue pressure, who hassles them and is overly critical and is always changing the goalposts or shaming them publicly, all of that kind of really common, unfortunately, increasingly common below the line behavior. I'm fascinated with the concept that we slip into the reptilian brain. It actually becomes a human impossibility to continue to function with all of our cognitive ability to do creative things, to think strategically, to bring our best game to the table. So it makes you wonder what on earth anyone, anyone who's got any experience in being a leader does any of those behaviors? Why on earth would a leader do any of those things? If that what they want is an outcome for their team, the individuals, the organization, what makes individuals slip to that below the line behavior? If they know the outcome is at least one people person or the people all around them slip into reptilian brain because they're feeling under pressure and it's a human impossibility to behave or or work at their best in that situation? What's driving that, Michelle? Geez, that was a long question, wasn't it? It's a long question and a lot of different components to it. So I think number one, the person that, that operates above the line is not interested, honestly, in the impact their behavior the has line. on others. Yeah. And so they're, you know, they can be, they're absorbed in themselves. And often people who are very below the line, it's because they are very below the line internally. So they're harsh on themselves, they're control freaks, they're self-critical, they don't trust themselves, and they go around behaving badly to everyone around them. But they're so self-absorbed. I mean, you know, when people behave badly from an ego perspective, really what's at the depths of that is just really insecurities, deep, profound insecurities. And they have a bravado of aggression or hostility or put-downs or whatever. That is a, a thin veneer that we can see underneath that is just total insecurity. Really? Right? That's interesting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question of that. I mean, you know, if you look at all, a lot of the research around psychopaths and narcissists and whatever, what it's, it's a very strong cover-up for what's deeply disturbing within a person within themselves. And there's mixed research on this. So I don't really want to focus on that one out of a hundred, I mean, psychopaths or narcissists, because most of what I'm really focused on is the average person, which is the other, not, you know, roughly 90, 99% of the population. But when mostly when people put one another, someone else down, are harsh and difficult, they're actually just projecting their own unhappy, grumpy, rude, judging, harsh inner world onto others. 
people have a, I mean, you have to realize this. People who have a genuinely good relationship with themselves appreciate their strengths and acknowledge their vulnerabilities and weaknesses. I just don't go around being really unpleasant and difficult towards others. Does that sort of make sense? Oh, look, that makes so much sense. And and the idea, you know, some of the behavior that I've witnessed over time in organizations to, you know, it, it seems like such confident bravado that putting down it, it seems on the surface like it's a an egotistical, I'm so much better than everyone in this room. I feel very comfortable treating you like nothing. The idea that that's actually often born from a deep insecurity, it's a bit counterintuitive. It, it makes perfect sense. And I'm sure rationally it's easy to absorb, but that's not usually your superficial reaction to it. Just interestingly, when you talk about narcissists, I guess the world's most famous narcissist gives us a very pointy end example of that, Donald Trump. And and we've largely, fortunately, seen the back of him. And his was such an enormous narcissism that the idea of him covering up deep doubts about himself was actually pretty much on the surface. It seemed pretty obvious that that's what he was doing with his blowhard claims that he made. But look, I know we're not in the business of diagnosing all of the people who act below the line, but I just want to put something to you that I've always thought through my career. When I see someone treating the people that they lead, in inverted commas, or manage so poorly with those below the lines behavior that we talked about, the public humiliation, the overly critical, all all of that kind of stuff, the, the shifting goalposts, I think is a particularly slippery one. I've always thought my default assumption has been that person is managing up. That person is trying to impress their boss by driving their people really hard. So when they go and report to the person they report to, because everyone reports to someone, whether it's a CEO reporting to the board or or whatever it might be, I always diagnose that as managing up. They don't care about the people who are below them in the hierarchy. They can burn and obliterate themselves for all they care. What they're interested in is the story they can tell their boss. Is there any legs in that assumption that I've been making all these years? I think that that I think that has merit. I think that's true. But as you said earlier, if we really want to get the best performance out of people, what we want to do is bring out the best in them. And it doesn't take long for an aware leader to realize if you're shifting goalposts, putting people down, humiliating them, shaming them and so on. It doesn't take long to realize that is not going to get, you know, that's not going to really ultimately get what you want if you're trying to manage up. So if you're trying to, you know, have a successful team and meet meet your key KPIs and meet your targets and all of that, it's does it in reality it doesn't really make sense, does it? So it really doesn't matter what your motivation is in work. If you want to get the best out of you and your team, just treat them kindly. Give them a, a healthy place to to survive and thrive and you'll get the most out of them. It's a it's a no brainer really and it just makes you wonder how people act below the line for periods of time without that clicking. But anyway, we'll move on. Now, listen, I've got a question, and I know that I'm asking on behalf of a number of listeners here. If there is individual below the line behavior that exists in senior level in an organization, can leaders and individuals who sit within that success trying to cordon themselves and their team away from it to acknowledge that exists but make it a conscious decision to operate differently at their level. Kind of saying, look, my boss is a horrible monster, but I'm going to protect my team from that. 
and I'm going to try and manage my team in a healthy way. Is, is that a, a good way to approach it? Is, is there any success in that? Have you seen people try that? What's the future there? Yeah, I think that is really possible. And I do see a lot of really dedicated leaders who try that and work really hard at, at it. I think what makes it viable is if you've got a really great network of peers at that level and other people, even other people who may not be a direct uh, line manager, but certain other leaders within the organisation that operate in a healthier way. So if you can see that modelled elsewhere in the organisation, I think there's hope. But if you are lone per manager or leader in an environment where all the people more senior to you and most of your peers are operating in pretty below the line ways, ultimately it's, you know, the question is, is that sustainable? You're swimming I, against I, the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, all the research, as we know, the fish rots from the head. There's so much research that shows that, you know, it really, the tone of culture, as you know, is set from high above. So a leader can do a certain amount, but it is really, it's a very tough thing. Yeah. All right. Last question about raking over the coals. And I feel like I just described a pretty common situation in organizations there, by the way. Last question as we rake over the coals, which I enjoy so much from a gory point of view, before we get to the good stuff, the positive stuff, this is something I've always thought about and talked about to anyone who will listen. Is it common to see leaders who at some point in their movement up a hierarchy, and you nominated organizations with hierarchies as one of, as really, with really strong hierarchies as a, as one of the dangers in below the line behavior. Is it common to see people as they move up the hierarchy think that at some point being a healthy, empathetic leader no longer applies to them? It mattered at some point. It mattered when I was a manager or when I was at this level or that level. But now that I'm up here and I'm really got a lot on my plate and I'm really important, I meet with the big boys, I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Do you see that often? I don't see it often. It does happen. What I see more, I guess, is that people who have thrived as a leader on building a high performance in their teams and they want that sort of relationship, they know how to motivate that staff in their environment. That's an enduring part of themselves. I think one of the things that I really want to say, which I haven't said yet, but is that I think the reason often people operate below the line is because that's how they were raised. That's what happened to them at school. They had, you know, that's what happened to them in their patch of the community or around them. Not always their families, but, you know, there were, there were some environments in their lives that encouraged them to operate. It might have been, you know, like, Surviving at school may not have been at home at all, could have been just how to survive at school. But the problem is that that becomes wired into our brain. Neuroplasticity shows that that's then how we operate continuous, continuously. So, yeah, my sense is that people who operate like that tend to operate like that for a long time unless something really shifts, you know, a bit of a crisis, some good feedback, sort of something that sort of working in an environment where everyone else operates differently and they sort of level up. I see less people who level down, if you know what I mean. It happens, but I hear about that less. Yeah. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Now let's get to the good stuff. Leading Above the Line is the name of your book, 
And you talk about in that book the, the fact that self-leadership is an overlooked ingredient in leading above the line. If that's our goal, to be an above-the-line leader and to be able to check ourselves on that, have healthy teams, healthy relationships with the individuals in our teams, with our team, with the rest of the organization, why is it that we overlook the importance of self-leadership? And, and why did you start with that in the problem-solving section of your book? Mm. I think I'm fascinated by this. I'm really interested in, it's a great question, why do people, when they talk about self-leadership, they only think, or I talk about leadership, they only think about leadership as an external relationship and people overlook the fact that we're all leading ourselves 24-7. And I guess, you know, there are lots of reasons why we may not think about that and part of it is that we haven't had good constructs for that. I think emotional intelligence or elements of AI like self-awareness, self-management, they touch on elements of self-leadership, but it's not a, in and of itself, it's not a whole construct around that. So I think there's a number of reasons. I think also we haven't had the language, like we didn't have the language of emotional intelligence before, before 1990. Yep, before 1990. So here we are, we're on a bit of a journey and I think our understanding now is building that um, how we relate to ourselves, how we self-manage has a huge impact on others. I think the neuroscience has given us incredible insight about this and that's a great gift to understand that area that I spoke about previously, interpersonal neurobiology. I think the other thing is, honestly, that, you know, 20 years ago, people used to think, well, you leave your personal self at the door mm. and you come in and you're just a professional and you sort of put on a whole persona. But what's really changed as well in the last 20 years is understanding that how we relate to ourselves actually is wide into our brain. It can be changed, but it's it's enduring. It's who we are outside of work, who we are at work. So we've changed our thinking and understanding of lots of things that have opened up, I think, the possibility of self-leadership emerging. Now, you asked me another part to that question, and I'm sorry I didn't carry it in my head as well. Well, I, I actually asked you why you started with that as well as why why people ignore that. But I think you've, you've answered that. I, I'm really interested in you giving us some examples of uh, the, the hallmarks of people who are effective self-leaders as opposed to those who aren't. What's going on with people who are and are not effective self-leaders? What do we see and what's going on inside them? Well, I think effective self-leaders understand their own needs, think about themselves, think about what brings out the best in them. And so they're aware of their strengths, they're aware of their skills, they recognize that they actually have to, need to look after themselves at all sorts of levels. They're curious internally and also I think they're not looking for other people to make them feel better. So, you know, in contrast to the person who is putting other people down, you know, people who go around putting others down do so in order to pump their own tyres up, right, like to make themselves feel better. So people who are good self-leaders don't need to do that because they've learned how to do it for themselves. And so they come into situations and are grateful to their staff, appreciative. It's easy for them to be kind and respectful because they've got, if I'm, if I'm allowed to swear, swear, they've got their shit sorted out on the inside at some profound level. And I guess that's what it really is about. 
and that's where they take personal responsibility. I think that's a real key for me. They know how to take responsibility. If they're in a crappy mood, they'll go and sort it themselves. They don't take it out on their staff. So, you know, that's what's happening at, at the internal level. And because they're aware of their skills and their strengths and that they have their ups and downs and all of those things, it does help them function most of the time from their executive brain. So they're going to be your high performers, people who are optimizing potential. They walk in, they can be present, they understand how to listen to others, how to engage with others, how to see others as a separate person, understand their similarities, understand their differences. They just show up in a completely different way, self-leaders. And sure, it's also about, you know, ongoing future development and and all of that. But it's I think what we've really experienced is the stuff that's in the moment, what it's like to be in a room with someone like that, who you know at a deep level is grounded, centered and okay in themselves. And they're not needing validation from you. They don't need to put you down. They're present and they're open and they can think broadly. It's a relief to be around someone like that. Yeah. There is so much in there. You would have noticed I was writing stuff down, so I didn't forget all the questions I wanted to ask you through that. You made a really good point towards the end there. Someone who is leading themselves effectively has this positive internal voice, the internal dialogue that we all have going on. If their voice is predominantly positive, then they're letting themselves operate at their ex- with their executive function most of the time because they're having a, a positive internal experience. Whereas I'm guessing the other side of that is those who are losing battles with themselves every day, whether it's it's not keeping the commitments they've promised themselves or doing things they promised themselves they wouldn't, drinking too much alcohol, staying up too late, not doing the exercise they said they would do, you know, not investing in their relationships like they tell themselves they want to. If this internal dialogue is going on where they're letting themselves down, maybe like having a manager who's who's acting below the line, those people are kind of retreating into their reptilian function because they're under pressure and they're under pressure because of their internal dialogue. Is is that fair? Uh, that's exactly what the, I, I talk about in the book. Absolutely. Because when you have... I love that because when you are speaking critically, I mean, from a neuroscientific perspective, it's like in your brain, if you've got, you know, you're driving down a dirt road and you've got different directions to go in. One is the pathway to town and the other one is somewhere and everyone goes down the pathway to town, right? So that get real deep ruts in the road. It's easy to go that way, hard to get bump, 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 bump up to the other direction. Our neural pathways, our wiring is exactly the same. If we're always thinking negatively, it's so easy. The default pathway always to go there. It's not just self-directed, it's directed to others. You know, it's really what I was speaking about before. It starts from the inside. It even goes to the point if you have very little language around your skills and strengths, you're not going to be able to identify not just your own skills and strengths, but others other people's. If you're always, and if your default is always noticing your weaknesses, you're going to have lots of language in your brain for negatives and you won't even notice the positives. I mean, that's, that is how our brain works. It's constantly wiring itself. That's what neuroplasticity is all about. So what you focus on, 
you keep wiring. If you're always noticing the negative, that's what you'll notice. That's what you'll see in yourself and others. It doesn't make for balanced leadership. This is not about avoiding people's opportunities for growth and learning or building capacity. We really want to do that as well. It's not about that. But it's much, I mean, all the research shows us, it's much easier to build on your weaknesses, to develop, you know, the opportunities for growth and learning if you also have a good understanding of your strengths and your skills. It helps create that balance and gives us resources. Geez, that is a telling analogy about the two dirt roads, the one often taken and the one not taken. That that idea that if we're negatively, if we're always talking to ourselves negatively because we are letting ourselves down, we're not happy with who we are, that, that our brain follows that path so easily and we pick that up in others. Whereas if the opposite is true, we're pleased with our ourself, we're, we're internally satisfied, then our, our, our brain's wired that way and we'll pick up the same stuff in others. I love that. And, and so much of what you told you talked about there reminds me of what Goldman said about self-awareness specifically, you know, the, the idea of engaging with someone with a high level of self-awareness, they're the people who can joke about themselves, who when they make a mistake are happy to joke about it because they are also very confident and comfortable with their strengths. And the flip side of that is being comfortable with your weaknesses. And if you can joke about your weaknesses, it means you're really aware of what you're good at as well. It just rings so true for me and the interactions that I have. Hey, I've, I've got one for you here because I love football. You live in Melbourne. So I suspect you're not a rugby league fan, but I'm talking about the Melbourne Storm coach, Craig Bellamy. He is one of the, if not the most successful rugby league coach in the modern era. And he fascinates me. He he leads a team, Michelle, who seems to be immune from the ebbs and flows of form. They are just always good. They will have greats of the game retire. And the next year people will say, oh, I wonder how they'll be without Cam Smith or without Billy Slater. And the next year, they're fabulous again. And this guy is at the center of that. But he has this really strange habit, Michelle, which challenges what I think about leaders. So he he runs this entire club really professionally. Everyone knows their role. They're all super positive. They love what they do. But this guy in the coach's box on game day blows up the lucks like someone with zero emotional intelligence. He's banging the window and yelling and swearing and screaming. And this is not one off that they replay every now and then. This is him all game, every game. And it challenges my assumption about people. You know, when you see someone who's really grounded and well-rounded and comfortable in their self and they don't have blow-ups, you think, geez, that's someone who's stable, I can trust, who runs a good shop. But you can see what I mean by this guy challenges that in me. His success is enormous. His players love playing with him. People go to his club and become better players for being in his presence. Yet he has this strange wart on his exterior. How do you explain that? And is that an anomaly? Yeah, so a couple of different ways I would explain that. One is if he is comfortable with the blow-ups, as in he is still like he can have blow-ups and put everyone down and shame and humiliate, or someone can have blow-ups just because that's how they let off steam, but that group, that team, know that he still respects them, loves them, trusts them. It's a very different thing. Two different types of blow-ups. Does that, that make sense? It does. Yeah, it yeah. does. And I, I can't know about that. I'm sorry. Even though I've grown up in Melbourne, I, it's this is so embarrassing. And, but you know that says about it. 
Well, I've been to one football match, one AFL-VFL football match Doesn't in my count. entire life when I was 12, right? So I am not... You're not the person to chat to about this. I used to to reflect on leadership. Um, and the different one very obvious difference is that a two-hour or three-hour, whatever it is, sports game is not the same as spending 40 hours a week with someone day after day after day. And I, I have some issue with the way in which we often look at leadership of sports teams and performance of sports teams when it's actually, if you add up the number of hours, you know, it's very, very different. So I also want to make that, draw that analogy, but I'm not sure how, yeah, I'm sorry, I've got no idea. I wouldn't even know anything about rugby, so please, yeah. But you, you've actually, without knowing anything about rugby league, you have answered the question beautifully because you've explained, and the, and this sort of was lying lying below this my cognitive surface was that there were, he must blow up in a way that doesn't offend people. He must blow up in a way that doesn't shame and wreck relationships with his players because they all love him, and he hasn't been doing this for five minutes. He's been doing this for twenty years, and it's generation after generation of players that he gets playing at their best. So. That does explain a lot. And if you happen to be listening to this, Craig Bellamy, I love your work and I doubt you are listening to this. No criticism, just an observation because it is so fascinating to me as a, as a leadership observer. All right. Now, Michelle, last question I'm going to ask you, and, I, and I, I'm glad we spent so much time on the self-leadership because it's so important and it's, and it's an often unrepresented part of leadership. You're so right in that our conversations are often about leading externally and not leading ourselves. I think sometimes we shy away from that because it can be a bit confronting to even talk about. Tell me about, and I know this is an unfair question, the difference in a few short minutes, the difference between leading above the line for individuals and leading my team. I love the difference, the, the way that we're able to speak in the, the nuance of what it takes to be an effective leader of individuals as well as being an effective leader of teams what does an above-the-line leader look like in both those realms? Right. So, yeah, I'll, I'll pricey it down. So, individually, it's about building a positive relationship one-on-one, -on -one, uh, like you, you know, we've just been talking about appreciating people's skills and strengths, but also ensuring they're accountable, ensuring they're motivated, understanding how to give them feedback about where they need to extend themselves. It's about not shying away from the tough conversations as well. But it is about building relationships and it's also about really understanding what makes people tick. So it's really helpful to understand what gives people meaning at work, what helps them maintain autonomy, what gives them a sense of fulfillment and motive, you know, all that stuff, because then you can constantly be aligning what they're doing with things that make them tick, which extremely well. When you look at a team, you're looking at multiple, say you've got 10 in your team, you're looking at 10 relationships with you, but you're also looking at the interrelationships between one another. And this is where when people come together in a group, it's how we manage our peer relationships, for want of a better word, our rivalries, our insecurities, our camaraderies, our support. And what an above-the-line leader within a team has to do is maintain relationships with all those 10 people, but also overview all the interrelationships. Groups have dynamics. Groups, like you say, can absolutely bring out the best in people. And that, going back to your 
coach story, you know, that is also part of a good coach, bringing out the those interrelationships, the interdependencies. So here's what needs to be above the line. And the tough stuff, I guess, in a team environment is that, you know, I, I use the analogy in the book of the ecosystem. You know, in a nature ecosystem, if it's mostly healthy, it can tolerate a little bit of few toxins, a little bit of shit going down, right? It can tolerate that. But if it's too much, all of a sudden it takes over like a virus. It become it goes rife throughout that environment. So an above the line leader of a team really needs to keep on top of that. What's going on in the dynamics? Are people working collaboratively? Is there goodwill? Are they aligned with the values of the organization? Is it a positive vibe? Or is some of the below the line stuff just getting a bit too much? And so an above the line leader of a team also really needs to keep an overview of that and cultivate what's good. So acknowledge not just performance and good outcomes and all of that, but also really do their work to acknowledge those healthy behaviours that are about collaborativeness and about trust and that build psychological safety and about asking questions and different perspectives. They're all good skills of a, of a leader. So that's how someone needs to lead a team differently in a way or, or an additional skill set is thinking about the collective and how to cultivate what makes a team work well together. And I'm going to leave you with the final word, Michelle. If you could tell me if from all your experience and your research, the work that you've done with individuals and teams, why is this concept of above the line and below the line behavior so important? Why is this the one thing you just base your book around? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking that because what I've, I guess my background, I worked in mental health for many years and I saw a lot of people who were highly traumatized by very dysfunctional behavior, toxic workplace behaviors of all, all, you know, bullying, sexual harassment, all of the discrimination, all of those sorts of things. And I think we often get focused on one of those, anti-bullying, you know, a culture, what's culturally appropriate, you know, no harassment, all of those things. But I think we need one unifying sort of concept because at one level, we're all human. That's the, the key thing, isn't it, David? We have our differences, but at one level, we're all human. We have a brain and we know what build, brings out the best in our brain. So for me, that sort of concept of above the line unifies all of that. It's actually what's good for humans. And what's good for one is good for basically pretty much generally everybody. Yeah. It's such a powerful concept, as you say. Michelle Bahari, I've enjoyed our conversation as much as I enjoyed your book. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you, David. I really appreciate being here. I love the sensitivity and thoughtfulness of your questions. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. That was Michelle Bahari. I really enjoyed our chat and I really enjoyed reading her book. It's called Leading Above the Line, Applying Neuroscience to Build Psychologically Safe and Thriving Teams. 
As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Michelle on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theories and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.